I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, everyone. I'm Sarthak, and I welcome you to one more episode of All Things Policy. Today, I have with me my colleague Suman. Suman is a program manager. She is the program manager for our GCPP program. Hi, Suman. Welcome to All Things Policy. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here, Sarthak, and to be doing a podcast with you first time. Yeah, we are recording it for the first time. <laughs> the pleasure is mine. Uh, Suman and I have been reading a book, Despite the State, by M. Rajshekhar. We thought we will discuss. some of the interesting findings in the book obviously we would recommend you to get the book and read it yourself and we'll share the link of the book as well so the book is basically divided into different chapters and each chapter talks about a specific state uh, some of the key issue the state faces and how the state has been trying to handle it or has not been able to handle it so in this episode we'll talk about some of these states uh, we'll not talk about all the states uh, some of the key states we are going to talk about so suman you have been reading about punjab yeah So, uh, what does Raj Sekhar say about Punjab? See, for me, uh, like I said earlier, the Punjab has always been a bellwether state for India. It has shown the way in terms of the green revolution in the past, or you know, the the kind of uh, even industry, the kind of uh, industries that came about post independence in Punjab. It has always been a forerunner. So. Uh, what i read in the book actually made me feel like oh uh, you know things are not going as great as they promised as it was promised or things have actually slid down you know down the uh, rails for some reason or so so the i mean what are these reasons you cannot i mean everything is playing one factor plays into another in a very connected yet not very apparent way Okay, so that chapter was quite revealing for me that how all these factors are playing on each other. So the first, I mean, through the book, the background has always been the environment, climate change that is taking place across the country. I mean, that we are seeing across the world, especially in India. We don't seem to be taking that too much as an issue to reckon with as such, but it is playing. a very very key role in the way economy the in the way the economy is shaping up agriculture industry all of these pieces so in punjab actually you see like the green revolution uh, i mean we had seen record wheat production record you know they they were really leading the way in terms of agriculture so in the book the author is actually parsing all of this whatever is happening through the lens of through these verticals agriculture industry environment and their effects on the state and its functioning on key areas such as public health education etc in punjab the climate change actually he is talking about is the clash in the southwestern and mid latitude westerly winds such okay these winds have seen some change therefore the rainfall patterns are changing agricultural patterns too 
of course, there's not much one can, I mean, can do about that as such. But what the state was doing very well a few years ago is that there was a good information dissemination system earlier. So information that was got about, say, you know, some kind of locust attacks or white flies, or they had enough bureaucracy or the bureaucracy was well oiled enough to pass on this information to farmers. What has now happened is, I mean, through the insurgency years, the bureaucracy actually shrunk. And what that has done is the capacity has reduced. And there was a white flies incident in 2015, which killed a lot of crop. So there was no information dissemination about how farmers should actually handle this white fly situation. Earlier, there was that that local networks, local, um, you know, your uh, bureaucracy was passing on information from the weather department or from agriculturists or scientists or whatever, how to handle this. Whereas now, since state has diminished in its role as such, uh, farmers don't get much information on that. Although, you know, actually now in, with the technology that we have, we should be doing a lot more on that. But we are seeing that having a huge effect on agriculture as such. So, Suman, one question I had here is, uh, why has the bureaucracy's uh, capacity has gone down over a period of time? Has the size increased or what, what has happened? Firstly, I mean, like with everything else, the insurgency took its toll. The tax collection system crumbled. So, there was, you know, lesser funding and lesser manpower to that. But uh, there has been no effort to revive that those systems after the insurgency years. And if there was, there was there's been very little that, that has been done. And what has happened through, I mean, through different political regimes and, uh, you know, general liberalization, I mean, all of that, while liberalization brought out a lot of good for us, our industry was, the industry, the small, ind- like in Punjab, what you see is, you know, they have, Bone the brunt of partition, the insurgency, a lot of other things. But industry has always dusted itself back. You've always seen, uh, you know, whether it's the garments industry in Ludhiana or the sports goods industry in Jalandhar, or all of these came up closer uh, to, you know, those all these small places. But since we did not prep them or for import liberalization. These small and medium firms have been losing their clout and China has taken over, you know, like if you see footballs or cricket ball, whatever, all of that, they seem to be losing market. But the main reason as as we go along, we see that the since the tax collection systems crumbled and the state was taken over by the business interests of uh, politicians and the running of the state was very closely interlinked. He calls this interessio. I don't know how you pronounce it. It, It's an Italian term where uh, it's in all other places, the states was separate. Of course, there was corruption. Of course, there is all of this. But in Punjab, the state and the business and all of it is complete. It's just one takeover by one family. So what that did was that they reduce taxes on transport. So all their revenue gathering or revenue gaining, um, you know, sources, alcohol, transport, or even, um, you know, some other things, all of them, they went 
tax free on all those things as a result of which they had no money for anything and the only way people are they are taxing people is through power taxation even water bill is a percentage of your power so once that power once you go on adding cesses to the power bills what happens is the power has become so expensive so all these industries are again exiting yeah they are they are finding it very very in uh, you know not competitive enough to be there so they are looking to move out or just shut up so that's that's really the you know the sorry state that he talks about over there it's interesting i would have assumed that uh, over a period of time uh, information dissemination and all these things would have become better but it's happening the opposite yeah with technology one should see that you know that but that is not not so one more state uh, just like you mentioned right the issues with the revenue another state here is mizoram so i was reading about mizoram and uh, in fact the author for this particular state he uses few words he says that mizoram is that state which could not pay salaries so in mizoram what he says is he talks about some officials who play a very significant role especially for a state like mizoram for example forest officials mizoram has a specific kind of demography it has uh, some tribal groups who have traditionally been involved in shifting agriculture shifting cultivation so where they will go to a particular forest they will basically burn the forest and on that land they will practice agriculture so they have been doing it for centuries yeah zoom cultivation slash and burn agriculture different terms are used for it so now we realize that all these things uh, uh, i mean this is not this is not sustainable this is not environmentally sustainable so forest officials play an important role who can guard these forests so he takes the example of these forest officials and uh, he says that their salaries have been pending for months together anyway they are paid very low salaries they have not been able to pay salaries apart from that uh, health officials who also play a very significant role especially when it comes to public health in uh, mizoram mizoram is one of those states uh, which is which is having an international border it is near the golden triangle thailand laos do they have like a huge incidence of aids or some, some kind of an epidemic exactly exactly so thailand laos myanmar they are just next to uh, mizoram and these are the places where you have opium heroin and all these things get they enter india through some of these northeastern states right so and many times uh, these drugs get circulated within these places where it enters into the indian territory right so uh, there is a huge prevalence of uh, aids uh, there are instances where people multiple people using same needles so these kind of problems are there so public health officials also play a very important role here but what has been observed in mizoram is salaries for these officials salaries for these forest guards they have been pending and it has a massive implication on mizoram and its society its economy uh, the author says that as forest guards are were not paid salaries for 6 months uh, what happened was uh, some of these forest guards they themselves started hunting they themselves oh, started shooting yeah. cultivation mm. okay mm. so uh, i mean mm. desperation exactly and uh, many of these uh, health officials or many of these people who are supposed to uh, provide condoms needles all these things generally what happens is they have to go to rural areas they have to go from one place to another and they distribute these things they also have uh, mobile counseling unit so again those who are addicted to drugs so you have different health officials health workers social activists they will go from place to place and they distribute these things they provide counseling but as the state is not able to fund for these things what has happened is these the travel budgets have been slashed 
and uh, these social workers health activists field workers they are not able to carry out their duties as a result of which the number of tests that you conduct for hiv it has gone down but the incidence of hiv has increased so mizoram has not been able to manage some of these basic things and which can harm its society which can harm its economy and uh, in fact to address the issue of uh, zoom cultivation they also introduced some policies uh, the mizoram state government uh, it introduced some incentives that if households are willing to move out of uh, shifting cultivation they will be provided some lump sum amount and with that lump sum amount they can start some other activity they can they will also be provided different kind of technical support but what has been observed is despite the scheme there has not been shift what happened here was those who are the initial beneficiaries they got this 1 lakh amount and they shifted but afterwards since the state has a resource crunch so they were not provided sufficient resources maybe uh, the state promised 1 lakh but provided them 10000 15000 rupees so with that amount of money it was not sufficient for people to shift their occupations so shift yeah so they took the money at didn't move yeah i mean they're not see just think of it right you are just giving them 15000 rupees and you ask them to start a new economic activity how it, it it's new. it's it's not feasible yeah yeah right so uh, this is what has been one of the major concerns in mizoram the state has found it difficult to pay for the salaries and uh, <laughs> the main and what could but why are they not able to generate revenue yeah so he this is what uh, he uh, describes in details now if you look at states in india right so there are different ways by which uh, they get revenues one is they generate their own revenues it can be through taxes it can be through non taxes right so taxes means uh, i mean if you have uh, economic activity going on uh, people are purchasing goods people are purchasing services uh, then on these things you will get taxes and uh, another is non tax revenues the state provides certain services in return it gets some resources now if you look at mizoram it is not able to generate sufficient amount of revenue it is heavily dependent on the union government for different grants it gets a part of union government's uh, tax transfers but uh, it is heavily dependent on uh, grants economic activity in mizoram has is not up to the mark one of the major reason is it doesn't have the right kind of infrastructure the transaction costs are extremely high uh, mizoram is at the international border right so we would expect that uh, i mean they have more opportunities yeah. there there is a comparative advantage they can trade with uh, countries which are uh, on the other side of the border and people in mizoram and people in myanmar many of them have some ethnic ties so that is also another comparative advantage but the infrastructure over there is uh, not good enough the neighboring state manipur which is also not one of those affluent states uh, there the infrastructure is comparatively better as compared to mizoram so this is what has happened and the author points to few of the failures here like he talks about how there is market failure he talks about how there are different kind of government failure as well uh, for example one of the problems they face is they don't have the right kind of infrastructure so government also recognizes that and it has invited tenders for different kinds of construction projects different kind of infrastructure projects but the rules regulations that are there for developing infrastructure right generally Uh, whoever is applying for the tenders they have to provide for uh, large uh, some guarantees huge securities yeah and the contractors in uh, mizoram they do not have that much amount of resources they are all small contractors so as a result of which most likely these contracts go to some other contractors which is not from the state and so they so people over there don't get benefited sometimes uh, there can be some smaller projects as well which can go to some local contractors but here what happens is 
there is a nexus between uh, the yeah yeah rent seeking is there regulatory capture is there uh, generally what happens he points a very interesting incident uh, he says that those who are in power uh, those politicians basically so they are the ones who will apply for these uh, tenders but they don't have the qualification for applying for these tenders what they will do they will get the documents from some contractor and they will apply for the tender once they get the contract they will give some commission to that contractor and then they will sell this contract to some other bidder right at a i mean uh, so basically what is happening they are they are acting as uh, some, an intermediary between the politicians right so eventually whoever is building those infrastructure projects they are not getting sufficient amount of money they don't have the right incentives so <laughs> again the whatever i guess there is no audit also yeah. on this right yeah even the quality of work that gets done quality of work will also be not good because uh, again at the end of the day the person who is constructing it he's not getting i mean sufficient incentives to construct it right so whatever projects are there they're not up to the mark and again this entire it has created uh, a mess here and many of the contractors who come from outside they get their laborers from outside so again local people don't get benefited uh, economic activity gets impacted in this region it doesn't increase as expected so all these government failures market failures etc have created this kind of a problem for mizoram and yes it has not been able to generate sufficient amount of revenue on its own and i think this is something which is relevant in the present context as well and not just for mizoram in the last one year just if you look at this entire scenario right so uh, states have been finding it difficult to raise revenues yeah uh, as we are dealing with the pandemic revenue streams have also dried down and the states are at the forefront in dealing with the pandemic they are the ones uh, who have to provide for healthcare the frontline workers are from the state and on top of that now they have to also pay for the vaccines that's true yeah so uh, i didn't see too many solutions coming out in the book he's he's presenting a very you know he's he's doing a show and tell kind of uh, you know an approach to solving the problem but yeah he's i mean it's very ap- apparent where the problem lies you don't have yeah. to spell it out in that much thing so it's actually i mean i would look at it more like foregone revenue which is co- coexisting with populism with you know non productive populism etc and a small elite is gaining you know more than the yes. others that is exactly. causing a lot of uh, issues uh, and it is playing out very differently in uh, punjab so uh, the way in punjab is see what has happened is you know one set of people have actually taken over the state as had taken over the state as such and it is so intertwined the, the state of crime and the state and the state itself is so intertwined that it is hard for people to find recourse to anything you know all the small uh, agriculturists are down all the small businesses are down so where do they all go for you know some kind of um, you know recourse or some kind of counseling also so punjab is seeing huge rise in re- religiosity so people visiting deras you know all these deras that we see although by tradition or sikhism does not or a lot of religions do not allow you to worship a human whatever a living person also they're seeing a lot of uh, religiosity people going to deras are increasing and they see that okay the religion has always given uh, given solace to people you know they see in a book or in a religious book or 
or anything, prayer or anything, it has always given solace. But now the frustration is so much that people say that that's not enough for me. I want somebody to listen to me. And that is where the, the religious heads are coming in. And so there is a demand, uh, you know, the politicians see that uh, these people are going there and therefore they also go there. The people see that the politicians listen to the religious heads. So again, it it's, can be a dangerous cocktail, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's causing this cocktail of who is going to pull out first. And it doesn't appear that because all these now these religious heads are becoming vote catchers. Nobody wants to uh, unsettle them or whatever. So that is also causing a lot of, you know, social strife within Punjab. So all of this is becoming a heady mix and one hopes that, you know, change in leadership or, you know, even leadership changes or some kind of philosophers. He's actually, in this book, he's actually bringing out, you know, earlier views. They had poets like Pash and, you know, who used to show people a philosophical direction also, you know, explain and stuff like that. Now it is, you know, as you get more and more uh, disentangled from the local systems as such, it's, you know, people are finding hard to get out of this, you know, vicious circle that is formed. So that is what is Punjab was about. So, uh, Suman, apart from Punjab, you also read about Tamil Nadu. Tamil Nadu is usually one of those states which performs exceptionally well when it comes to different socioeconomic indicators. So what does uh, the author uh, mention about Tamil Nadu? Yeah, so in Tamil Nadu, I mean, the whole book is more like an ethnographic travel kind of thing. He's traveling across this, across all these states. And it's not so much an urban uh, perspective that you get from the book. He's traveling really into the hinterlands to report, right? So even in Tamil Nadu, he does that. He's visiting all the villages to see how things are panning out as such. So Tamil Nadu is one of those states that were like the forefront of social uh, equity and, you know, the whole thing about elimination of caste and... Different kind know, of uh, anti-caste anti movements and all movements, So they had seen a lot of success over there. But something seems to have changed, even there. Okay, Considering that the Dravidian parties were actually AIADMK, DMK, whatever, whatever you call it, they all came out from that self-respect movement that Periyar had launched. They came to obliterate caste. But what has actually happened is they have intensified caste identities. Okay, So this caste was one pillar of the Dravidian movement and the other, I mean, an obliteration of caste. And welfareism was the other pillar. Now, both of them, I mean, he's tracking how the state has moved on both those issues, on both those pillars as such. Now, because, I mean, of course, there was... Uh, when we say Tamil Nadu did better on caste and social justice, it doesn't mean that, you know, the, everything was like one fairy tale land or anything. It was relatively lesser. And they still had their Dalits and, you know, all those uh, issues, the caste friction that was there. But what has happened through the years, like one of the unseen effects of liberalization maybe, it caused migration. Okay, because Tamil Nadu saw a lot of, I mean, relative to other states, they saw a lot of cities emerging. They had Coimbatore, they had Trishu, they I mean, uh, Trichy, they had 
you know, uh, uh, it's not like oh Chennai and the rest of Tamil Nadu, like it is in Karnataka. Karnataka is heavily dependent on Bangalore, right? But it's not. It, it's relatively less in Tamil Nadu. They have Coimbatore. They have you know the various Salem. They have Hosur, all those places. So what happened then was that the lower caste saw that migration was a good route to success in the sense that they went to these nearby cities and they got more prosperous. Whereas the relatively upper classes stayed back and took over lands and all of that happened. But again, because of the climate change issues that were plaguing agriculture or anything, they found that they were losers. They lost in this whole thing and the lower castes were actually gaining a lot more. And that was seen in, you know, in the kind of um, Resentment the lifestyles. Yeah. Okay. yeah, the lifestyles they had, like TVs, fridge, all of that came into the Dalit homes and that caused a lot of angst. And they saw that these people are doing much better than us. There is no way to assert our dear or, you know, their caste identities. So what then happened was that the personal became political. So then each party be- began to stand up for one subgroup, caste subgroup. And the, you know, they got into honor killings and what was essentially a personal issue, marriage. They became, you know, Intercaste marriages, which were once welcomed, was now seen as a source of friction. So it involved caste to, you know, leaders coming and approving for approving these weddings or, you know, all of that. And that has caused a little, uh, has caused some friction in the social uh, milieu of the state. When the social milieu gets upset, it is you know, it will get into other uh, sectors. So, like he's quoting a few people, he says, caste will be the last of the iniquitous institutions that will die. And they will outlast, caste is something that will outlast all other things. So that is about that one pillar of Dravidian parties that he's talking about. The other one he's talking about is welfareism. How did they do welfareism and how it has changed over the years? So that is a different, uh, you know, issue altogether. So welfareism, mostly see, Tamil Nadu saw uh, infant mortality rate, maternal mortality rate was, you know, reducing consistently. But after a point, they are at, uh, in 2013, they were at about 99%. But after the ta- point, it was, it started plateauing. Why? Because you are only focusing on those two metrics and further reductions on in those has to come from more fundamental causes such as poverty, caste and gender discrimination. Also, nutrient intake was falling because in the PDS systems, they saw again caste discrimination, they saw gender discrimination, etc. So all of this was playing into the polity because all parties were selecting, were bringing in a majoritarian bias in their selection of uh, representatives or for him. So this also they, you know, they took pride in professionalizing the directorates, etc. But they ignored the lower part of the public health system. So the ashas, the health workers, etc. were, I mean, were given a short shift. So as a result, 
again, these maternal mortality rates started, you know, while on paper they might look good, but the ASHA workers are not actually going house to house. And if they are, they are only tracking metrics and they are not doing the jobs that they are supposed to do. So you mean to say there is a divergence between, uh, I mean, the numbers and the quality? Yeah, they're they are very narrowly focused on just getting that number to a certain uh, thing. That's what they're, you know, projecting a number based on a certain kind of measurement. Yeah, so the focus is more on the outputs. Outcomes might be slightly different. Slightly. They're seeing a, a fall on the in those kind of metrics. And that is a cause for worry. I mean, but still, I would, uh, as if you compare um, Tamil Nadu with other states, it will still be better. But yeah, yeah. Uh, outcomes are also something which is important. For example, uh, education. Uh, yeah. So we focus on output. So we look at uh, enrollment numbers and all. But when it comes to the learning outcomes, it's not uh, as good, right? So maybe we have to make that shift. And yeah, yes, so, uh, yes. so, uh, so, uh, so as Tamil Nadu. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and one more state. Uh, I mean, we are moving to the northern parts, or rather, the eastern part of India. So, one more state that I studied is Odisha, and uh, that's your their, home state. That's my home state. <laughs> so, I was more interested in Odisha, and I actually could relate with some of the things uh, that uh, Rajshekar talks about. Uh, and for this particular state, he uses uh, one statement that it is the state which wasted its iron ore boom. So, as most of you will be knowing, Orissa is one of those states which has, which is rich in mineral deposits, specifically iron ore. Between 2000 to 2009, the price of iron ore increased by somewhere around 80 times. And the iron ore that was extracted from Orissa, that increased by somewhere around uh, 10 times. The exports of iron was like 16 times that increased. This is the change in some 9, 10 years. So, as you are extracting more iron, you are selling more iron. And the price that you're getting for iron, that has also increased. So we would assume that the state of Orissa would have got a lot of revenues. And uh, uh, this would have reflected in its uh, healthcare status or education status. And uh, so the schools would have become better. Healthcare would have become better. People would have become more affluent. But what he says is this is not the ground reality. Maybe you are selling more iron ore, but uh, you are not generating as much revenue. And the social so the social indicators do not look really good so why this is the case right you have some resources and you are able to extract those resources but why this is not getting translated into better standard of living for the people so these are some of the things that he tries to explore the first thing he points out is orissa focused a lot on extracting and exporting iron ore now, iron ore is something which is a low-value product. And at this point of time, China demanded a lot of steel. So, we are basically selling iron ore to China, exporting iron ore to China and some other countries as well. What he is suggesting is, if we had converted iron ore into steel and we had exported it, then again, the returns would have been much more because steel is a high-value product. Yeah, high-value. Yeah, so we would have got better returns and... Uh, yeah, but those require investments, I guess. Yes, and it requires investments. <laughs> so, uh, see, I'm from Raulkla. Raulkla is known as is one of those steel cities and it has that steel plant. If you look at Raulkla and the adjacent areas, you'll have a lot of these small and medium-sized plants. They also produce steel, but they're not as competitive. When the price of steel was very high, they were also producing steel because the steel that they produce was expensive, but the price of steel in the international market was even higher. 
now but these steel plants are not that efficient because they don't they're not operating at scale so what rajshekhar is suggesting is maybe the state could have incentivized these small producers to ramp up their uh, r&d and other things so that way they would have been more competitive but the state is not doing that rather the focus is on exporting minerals now what is the reason why uh, iron ore is only being ex- exported why didn't we did not focus on steel so he says that the mining lobby is very strong and uh, if you look at the mining sector here there are two players one are the mine owners uh, those who actually own the land uh, which has these reserves and then there are some mining contractors now among them there is this collusion and what happens typically here is the mining contractors who have the technical know how to extract uh, resources they will inflate the price that they are charging from the mine owners and as a result of which what will happen the mine owners will show that they do not make lot of profits so the profit before tax will be very low as the profits are low as <laughs> what will happen is the uh, states will not get sufficient amount of taxes so this kind of collusion existed so as a result of which the state did not get sufficient amount of revenues and the royalty that the state was getting it was also quite low right so state is not getting resources from sufficient resources or what it should have got from uh, the iron ore but yeah the third thing that could have happened is yes it's okay i mean even if it the state is not getting sufficient amount of revenue since there is extraction of iron there is uh, export of iron and uh, there are some there are some committees which which estimate that in this 10 years odisha might have uh, extracted some 2 lakh crore worth of iron right so when you are getting 2 lakh crores in your economy that can also boost different kind of economic activities Activities. yeah different kind of other activities could have been taken up maybe jobs would have been created employment opportunities would have increased entrepreneurial activities would have emerged but that is also not something which is happening 2 lakh crores has entered into the economy but most likely it has not entered into manufacturing and all these sectors the investments primarily happened in uh, different kind of speculative oh. enterprises uh, for example there was a phase where there was this engineering boom uh, so many of these uh, uh, players who were dominant in the mining sector they are investing in engineering colleges and uh, the estimates are not appropriate uh, before 2000 there were some five odd engineering colleges in orissa between 2000 to 2010 90 more engineering colleges emerged just imagine 10 years 90 colleges and 60 of these colleges were in bhubneshwar and i i was there in orissa at that point of time i used to wonder like how come these new colleges are emerging and many of these colleges the names will be similar the names will be strange uh, and uh, they they're not investing yeah. in uh, medical colleges and all because medical colleges because that would require more, more money you will also need to op- have hospitals so they're investing in easier things so they're investing in engineering colleges and uh, so many colleges came up and uh, but they, those also would have gone down ha uh-huh, exactly so point. do we have demand for these many engineering college seats so he points out that in 2015 there were some 46000 seats out of that 30000 seats were lying vacant oh my god right mm. so you have pulled in your money and you are not getting any returns and there were host of unintended consequences you don't have students vying for these seats now uh, teachers will get affected. teachers were getting affected and on top of that teachers were given targets that you have to get get your own students oh my god so they have to get involved <laughs> in different marketing activities uh, so i use i remember these things used to happen i mean these colleges will go from one place to another they will host a seminar in the seminar they will say that okay we are offering these, uh, okay, these courses our placements are like this please join 
so those kind of things and they had they also had to lower the examination standards uh, that competitive examination standards so that they can get more people right so yeah. this lowering <laughs> this of enta- educational this lowering of standards is prevalent i think across even tamil nadu has seen but not at the engineering level but at the school uh-huh. level uh, because they want to bring everybody on to the same till 9th standard everybody is passed and then the first time that a student is actually tested is when he joins engineering or college so but here they are again test they are lowering the standards for that as well so <laughs> so the competitive exams uh, through which you get the engineering seats okay mm-hmm. or the pers- minimum percentage that is required right so all these things they are trying to lower it so first thing is the focus has been on exporting low value goods second thing was there is a collusion as a result of which you are not able to generate sufficient revenues for the state third thing is whatever money is generated through these activities they are going into different kind of speculative investments right so all these things leads to a situation where the odisha government is not able to leverage uh, on its mineral resources and the international markets were doing well maybe we could have leveraged it so this is what they pointed out another thing they're pointing out it's something which happens in many other states as well so there is this consolidation of media yeah so you have uh, same players who own different types of media i think it's it's a common thread i have read it in tamil nadu in punjab ha. and in yeah the the information is not getting out right how do people know yes. they will not be able to know and they will also i mean there's no one to hold them account no one to hold government accountable as well yeah so uh, for me the uh, the themes across the book was climate change economy inequalities and social harmony okay these four things are going to determine the future trajectory of the country and politicians for whatever in interests and incentives they have they will use everything under their power to steer away from these issues because these issues are difficult issues to solve okay and it is for us to be vigilant now how we develop that vigilance how we bring out that is something that we need to really look at is what i think is what uh, comes out yeah exactly i mean uh, so as you mentioned right politicians i mean they are also at the end of the day rational actors so we have to find, mm-hmm. th- understand what are their incentives how do you uh, change the incentives so that we can address these governmental failures that are there or the market failures that are there right so for example the kind of market failures we have seen in mizoram right so uh, i think this is what is more important and uh, we just talked about some states but uh, many of these things are equally applicable for other states as well yeah like he says in the book he's just picked these states not for any particular reason just you know out of random curiosity so i guess you'd find all of it in other states too yes so i think it's time we wrap up uh, the discussion sure thank you everyone for tuning in we'll meet again in one more episode thank you thank you If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle. at takshashila inst or our website takshashila.org.in